Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Marike Udela from the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry in Göttingen on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD from the University of Oxford in 2018. You then stayed there as a junior research fellow until October 2020. And since then you are a Lisa Meitner Group Leader at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry in Göttingen in Germany. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, so um, I think I was always, as a, as a child, I was, I was very curious and I, I loved reading and I actually really liked going to school. And then when I started going to high school, I really liked the science subjects that I had, so especially biology and chemistry. And I started to kind of have this idea, uh, you know, wouldn't it be cool to, to become a researcher and to really, you know, discover new things about the world that, that nobody ever knew before. Um, but then, yeah, as I had to sort of like pick, pick my subject for my next studies, my, my parents and my teachers were warning me, you know, this is a very difficult career path. And so um, they wanted to encourage me also to study something that was maybe a little bit more applied and that would have uh, some more career options. So... So of course they kind of encouraged me to look into medicine, but that was something I was really not so excited about because uh, the curriculum in the Netherlands offers very little scientific foundation. And so in the end, I, I settled on doing pharmaceutical sciences, which has a fair amount of cell biology and biochemistry and biophysics. Um, so I think that was, that was fine, but it was very clear for me from the start that I was really not interested in anything that was related to pharmacies. And so I was, fortunately, I was able to, you know, change my courses a little bit. And, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I would have preferred to just immediately study biochemistry or biology, but it, it, it kind of worked out. And I was able to then, after this bachelor's program, do a master's program that really uh, prepares students for a research career in biology. And so... Uh, I was able to do a lot of different rotation projects. So I did a little bit of neuroscience and I did a little bit of immunology. Um, and I did one project that was uh, yeah, a little bit more about genetics and about embryo develop development in Drosophila. And that's when I really, um, I don't know, I had this sort of realization that I really wanted to work on, on gene regulation because it kind of hit me that this is just really one of the most important um, topics to study in, in biology, at least at least to me, because I feel like it very much lies at the heart of this, this enormous mystery of how you can have, you know, just a single fertilized egg that, that develops into this complex organism that has, you know, all these different specialized cell types. And, and somehow these, these cells, you know, they all share the same DNA sequence, but they need to know when to switch on which genes. And, and that was just something that, that I got really interested in. So this sounds like you had the academic career already in mind from the beginning. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I think I was a little bit too too shy to to say that, you know, but it was something I was always dreaming of. Yeah, but uh, I mean, in school, at least uh, I can say that you really don't know exactly what a research career would look like. So that's, that's also a little yeah, bit different. Yeah, that is true. So as I already uh, mentioned, you relocated from the UK and this was after the Brexit and in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So what was this like? Um, 
was your move influenced by the Brexit or uh, because your name doesn't sound that it was from the UK? Um, so yeah, how was this all this moving in in the light of Brexit and the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so I'm I'm originally from from the Netherlands, so that's right. My undergrad, and then I did my masters in Sweden, and then I, I ended up in the UK for my for my PhD and also for uh, for short postdoc. And and I kind of after six years in the UK, I think irrespective of Brexit, I was keen to move back to continental Europe and be a little bit closer to uh, to family and friends and so forth. And and I have to say, you know, in a in a place like like Oxford where I was, I. Brexit, of course, it was sort of like politically, you know, I was very sad about it, but it's not like I felt unwelcome there or anything. And, you know, everybody in, in, in Oxford voted against Brexit. So so I don't think it was so much influenced by that uh, per se. And if you've lived in the UK for a long time, it's also not like you were kicked out, you know, like you'd have your residence permit and so forth. Um, but anyway, so it, it, it kind of made sense for me to to go to to Germany because it has, you know, an amazing uh, science infrastructure and, uh, you know, very generous funding opportunities and amazing institutes and so forth. Um, so that's kind of like where I, where I, yeah, wish to go and that worked out. And uh, the the pandemic, I mean, it, it must have been tough to to relocate and, and get new people um, when you can't really meet and were socially distant. And I, I don't know if the, the lab was closed when you when you moved or if that was an advantage even. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it was okay so it was it was unfortunate that for my last uh yeah what is it my last six months or so in oxford the lab was closed and that was that was really unfortunate because i had meant to do there were a lot of things that i still wanted to set up and and take with me and so that was that was quite frustrating but at the same time you know i also had a fair amount of thinking and writing and preparing to do so I could also you know it was in a way also fine that I had a little bit more time to just reflect from home uh, so that was okay and then my actual move was actually exactly a year ago now so that was in in summertime when things are a little bit easier um, um, so that that was fine and then the, the recruitment is yeah it was a little bit challenging that you can't really meet people face to face but I think if you're you know you can get to know people well over 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 zoom or skype or whatever if you if you take your time and and, and so it, i already was able to to recruit two PhD students who started with me at the same time and then there were some horrendous visa issues but fortunately you know the admin team <laughs> took care of that so it all it all worked out and when we came here the institute is also remained open and I think you know you're you also realize that in a way it's kind of fortunate to be a very small team in a very big lab because you know everybody has their own <laughs> corner and you, you don't really have this sort of space constraint um so it, it it was it was okay you know I think it's yeah it's a little bit more difficult to integrate somewhere and meet everyone uh but it's also not been horrendous uh, so yeah Coming to a science that centers around the communication of enhancers and promoters, as well as how those interactions are formed to influence gene expression and mammalian differentiation, as you already touched upon, and how perturbations of those processes influence human diseases like cancer. I want to start in the year 2000, 2017, so not too long ago. Um, there you were first, first author on a paper titled Robust Detection of Chromosomal Interactions from Small Numbers of Cells Using Low Input Capture C. So the question is, how is CAPTCHA-C different from 3C? And what did it enable you to find due to those changes maybe also? 
Yeah, so I think maybe it's good if we first um, take a minute to to talk about three Cs in general. I mean, I'm sure you've covered this before, but it's um, yeah, yeah. Eris Lieberman Hayden and Job Decker were on the show, so <laughs> yeah. So so maybe just a quick a quick recap. So three uh, C stands for chromosome confirmation capture, and essentially the idea that 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 is shared across all these approaches is that you. Um, you, you know, you, you chemically fix your cells, you kind of freeze their confirmation. And then, um, and so, so, so the aim of the method is to, is to work out, sorry. That's done with formaldehyde, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, so the aim of the method is to kind of get some insight in, in the three-dimensional structure of the DNA um, inside the cell. And so what, what we do is we kind of freeze that, that structure. So we treat the cells with formaldehyde and then uh, we, we cut the DNA sequence in very small pieces and then we, we paste them back together such that the pieces that were in close proximity that were cross-linked together um, get get connected to one another. And so you're essentially reshuffling the very long, you know, genetic sequence into a sequence that reflects uh, the three-dimensional structure that it had inside the, the cell nucleus. Um, so that's kind of the the the, the principle of three C that was established by Job Decker a long time ago, and then now. And you do this because um, you need to sequence, right? So you need to have some connected one piece of DNA that you can sequence and that contains some um, proximity information. Exactly, exactly. So you can essentially, the whole key, uh, that the whole, the whole point of this is then to identify those newly formed junctions because they're kind of like the points of contact. So of course, with, um, you know, with, with, with the development of next generation sequencing technologies, that's become relatively easy. So you sequence over those junctions and then you can map the two interacting partners. Um, and so there's now, you know, there's like a million different ways of, of doing this, which I think is very confusing to people who are not like right in the field. So, um, so you can do, you can simply say, you know, we have this big library, uh, we mark the junctions and we sequence everything. And that's what you do when you do high C, but you can imagine that, you know, you have a huge genome, you cut it in very small pieces. In theory, anything could ligate with anything. So you're getting an enormous complex library. You need to do incredibly deep sequencing to, to extract all that information about the entire genome. And of course, often researchers are only interested in a very small part of the genome. So it's very nice to have methods where you can enrich the bit of the genome that you're interested in and specifically look at that region. And so you don't have to sequence the rest of the genome. And, and the other advantage is also that you then get much more detailed information for that region than you would when you do it genome-wide, because you can just put all your sequencing effort into that region. So you get a much better sense for the relative interaction frequencies um, uh, sort of surrounding that, that area and a better idea of sort of the detailed three-dimensional confirmation. And so um, Capture C is essentially a way that allows you to pick, you know, as many areas you're interested in. So it can be one, it can be sort of hundreds, and you can then use um, short uh, biotinylated oligonucleotides to kind of fish out sort of like one fragment that you're interested in. So usually you would pick a restriction fragment that covers a gene promoter or, or an enhancer, and you kind of fish that out. And with that, you fish out the, the partners that were ligated to it, and then you can very efficiently sequence that. And um, and in this, this paper that you're now referring to, we basically uh, optimize that method to make it work really well with, uh, with low cell numbers. And this is something that is just inherently a little bit challenging about 3C approaches, because if you think about it, um, you know, you're... Um, you're, you're trying to identify these ligation junctions. And if you're interested in 
one particular restriction fragment covering your promoter, of course, from one cell, you know, it can ligate to something on one end and on the other end, and you have two alleles, but at max, you're going to get four interactions per cell, right? And, and ideally, if you want to get a really robust idea of what kind of, you know, interaction pattern this, this, this fragment forms, you want to get you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of those interactions. So, so you're, you know, inherently, you, you, it's quite difficult to do this in very low cell numbers, and you really need to make sure that you minimize uh, any loss at any step. So it was just a very technical paper where we tried to, uh, you, you know, really optimize the procedure to minimize losses and to extract as much information as possible for those regions of interest. Yeah, but that's also interesting and and uh, nice to hear what what kind of challenges those methods uh, face. Um, so, for for me as an outside person, um, it's all, I mean I know that everybody's or many not everybody but many people use three C, right? It, I mean it's a well established technique and and um, everybody knows that that it, it's uh, it's there and it, it's used and it's useful, but. Uh, Can you say something about uh, how many people used your Capture C approach? Was it just useful for you, or was it like useful for a broader community? Um, I think, I think in the beginning when it so it was already developed when I joined the lab in, uh, in Oxford. And to be honest, it was it was my motivation to join there. So when I was sort of interviewing there, uh, so Jim Hughes and Doug Higgs, they they each have their own laboratory, but they work together a lot. They had just published this paper and I had read that and I was super impressed and I thought it was really powerful. So that's why, why I decided to, to, to join that lab. And then initially, of course, you know, it was just published. So, uh, so nobody else was, was using it yet. And then we put a lot of effort as a lab to make those methods um, easier to use because in the beginning it was also just really quite difficult. And so also by optimizing it for smaller cell numbers, that of course also meant if you were to do the same thing with more cells, you were more likely to get good results from it. So even if you did lose quite a lot of material. Um, so we tried to make it um, easier to use. And I think a lot of people have now started using it. So it, it depends a lot on, on um, you know, the specific question that people have in mind. So a lot of people will still use high C if they, um, and, and high C is, is, is great, you know, if you want to look genome wide, but I think people are a little bit less aware that if you don't necessarily need genome wide data, there's actually a whole, you know, range of other methods that, that, that you can use. And I think, of course, 4C is, is, is a method that is in, in many ways similar to CAPTCA-C that was developed uh, years earlier, and that also works, works very well and, and has some advantages. But I think the nice thing about CAPTCA-C is that you can really Look at multiple regions at the same time and for 4c you would in principle have to do a separate experiment for each of these um so that that, that that's an advantage and that's it i think it took a while before people realized that but now there's quite a lot of people uh using it sort of either in collaboration with us or just on their own um yeah, it also depends on where you are at uh, in your experiment right or in your um, scientific question if you're just starting and you need a bias-free um, experiment then it's different than if you already know what you're looking for Exactly. It really depends on, on the question that you have. So you you just mentioned that it's not a method, but methods. So the plural of method. <laughs> so you went on uh, to, yeah, you did not stop at CAPTCA-C, but then you moved on to develop what you called TRI-C. So what was the motivation behind this development and what did you find using this approach? Yeah, so um, yeah, this becomes a little bit of, of a technical story, but um, You know, essentially what, what we do in these sort of what I will call like the conventional 3C method, so that includes high c and also capture c is that 
we're just sequencing those ligation junctions, right? So we're I, essentially you're kind of identifying like, oh, piece A interacts with piece B. And, and, and you can then say, okay, so this promoter tends to form interactions with this enhancer here. And maybe we also see that it often forms interactions with another enhancer, but you don't really have information about whether these, 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 these multiple enhancers and this promoter would be interacting simultaneously in some sort of like higher order complex or whether these would be sort of mutually exclusive interactions and that you could only ever have one enhancer interacting with this promoter at the same time. And with these conventional 3C methods, you just, you will never know because you're only looking at pairwise data. So, you know, we always call these like 3D methods, but essentially they're kind of 2D, right? Because you, you only have those, those two dimensions because you're, uh, you're, you're, you're looking at pairwise data. And so, of course, one way to answer this question of, you know, how do multiple elements interact at the same time in the same cell, um, one way of looking at that will be to do some sort of single cell experiment. And, and you do have single cell high C methods in principle, but as I was saying before, it's, it's kind of challenging to, to, to do these methods in really, really low cell numbers because per bit of the genome, you can only get a few interactions per cell. So, um, so it's, you know, and you can then merge that and, and bin it and, and, you know, get a sense at very low resolution, but at this kind of, you know, at the level of individual regulatory elements, the resolution of these single cell approaches is really not high enough. And so we realized that there's another way that you can get at this problem because, um, essentially once you've, um, once you've cross-linked your cells and, and digested them and, and re-ligated them, you end up with this very long string of re-ligated um, fragments. And those are derived from the same allele. Um, so, and, and you can also you know, validate that by, by looking at, at, at SNPs if you wish. So essentially that, that kind of means that you, you, know, you do the, the prep, the, the 3C prep of like fixing digestion ligation, you do that within nuclei. So, so that information is contained from, from or is derived from, from a single cell. And so you get a very long string of re-ligated fragments. Um, and so essentially, if you are able to just read out a larger part of that string, you also get this information of, you know, how are multiple fragments ligated to one another. And so I should say what we normally do with sequencing is because we can, you know, it tends to be easier to sequence short um, bits of DNAs that we, we sonicated and we shredded to like pieces of about 200 base pairs. So you only identify two parts of that long string. So we got interested in trying to identify a larger part of that of that string. And so initially we tried to, um, to use these platforms that do really long read sequencing, such as, such as Nanopore. But I think at the time, especially, it was just difficult to do that because the accuracy of these reads is not very good. So you would just get lots of um, errors in your sequence and that would make it really hard to, to map the data back to the genome and to you know, know which ones are unique reads, which ones are PCR duplicates, how is the mismapping affecting my, um, you know, how I sort of call these interactions. So, so that was a little bit challenging for us at the time. And we realized that um, if we're only able to read out a third element, so rather than sort of doing it pairwise, you know, looking at three elements that are interacting at the same time, we already kind of bring in that, that third dimension because we can sort of statistically, we can then say, okay, if a promoter interacts with an enhancer, is it more likely for an, another enhancer to be there or is that always kind of excluded? And so basically what we then did is we kind of carefully optimized the capture C methods in a way that we increased um, the fragment sizes after sonication and we sort of increased or we didn't increase, we changed um, 
our oligonucleotide design and the way that we pulled out those fragments such that we would very efficiently pull out kind of triplets rather than sort of, you know, just these pairwise uh, interactions. And then so we, we then, you know, were able to sort of analyze that data and do these kind of statistical analyses. And then we were able to work out that indeed, you know, if you have sort of multiple enhancers regulating a gene, they tend to cluster together. And so they form what we call these sort of hubs or, or however you want to call them. But, but, but this is kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, when we come um, to the biology that you were looking at, um, and not so much to the techniques you were developing or working at, um, there was a paper in 2018, and there you looked at the chromatin interaction at the alpha-globin locus, and um, maybe that's already what you touched upon uh, slightly now, and how multiple regulatory elements cooperate or compete for transcriptional activation. Can you maybe just um, summarize what you find there, found there? Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly using the method that I just trans uh, that I just described. We um, we use that to study um, the globin loci, and, and the lab that I was working in has a very long tradition of, of studying these loci, and they're very well um, well characterized. So that makes it attractive to work on them. And so indeed, we found basically that. Um, that multiple enhancers, um, if, if a gene is re regulated by multiple enhancers, which many sort of developmentally important genes are, they, they tend to, to, to cluster together. And um, I think at the time that was really a question because it had also been suggested that these interactions could be mutually exclusive. Uh, but, but we indeed found that, that, that this, uh, these, these elements tend to come together when they, when they switch on a gene. And I think you know, recently there's been um, a lot of discussion about this idea of the formation of, of some sort of condensate in the nucleus. And I think that's still very much, you know, a field in development and it's all not very well characterized yet. And I think there's a lot to learn there. But in principle, this would, of course, be very fitting with that with that idea that you have some sort of uh, that you have multiple elements that that, that that come together. And of course, if you have multiple regulatory elements, you have a much larger potential concentration of transcription factors and cofactors and so forth that could potentially also kind of make that hub or whatever it is more stable to allow really um, efficient activation of, 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 of transcription. Um, and stable activation maybe also. Exactly, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, when we go on with your biology or with the biology you looked at uh, just last year, or yeah, one year ago, we are recording this as maybe this is obvious uh, in 2021, um, you were first author of a paper titled Dynamics of the 4D Genome During uh, In Vivo Lineage Specification and Differentiation. Again, <laughs> describing a new method called TILC. Um, the question is again, what uh, is this method and uh, what did you find using it? Yeah, so um, Tilty, it's again sort of an, 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 an extension of, of, of the methods that I described earlier. And what we did there is kind of as, you know, as opposed to capture C where you um, enrich for specific restriction fragments of interest, so sort of say like one gene promoter or, or one enhancer, uh, you just enrich for an entire region that you're interested in. And, and there were methods uh, that were able to do that that before that we developed ILC, I should say. Uh, but, but what we realized is if we sort of combined sort of the efficient way in which that, that, that we use to, to do the oligonucleotide enrichment together with all those um, optimizations on the library prep that I did earlier in 2017, we realized that we could go even further down in cell number and also characterize the structure of much larger regions of, of the genome. So, so that, that, that was really interesting. And we could now get really high resolution data from as few as 
2000 cells. And then uh, we were really excited about that because that allowed us to do something that we uh, wanted to do for a long time, which was to really characterize um, with a lot of precision how genome architecture changes during differentiation. So, um, you know, there's kind of this, this, you know, it's very clear that um, the 3D genome, the structure of the genome is, is related to gene regulation, but it just, it's just not exactly clear what the nature of that relationship is and what is causal and, and, and so forth. So one way of getting at that question is to just say, okay, well, how do different three-dimensional structures develop and when, and how is that related to activation of the gene regulatory elements and activation of, of gene expression if you look throughout development? And that, again, that's also something that had been done before, but, but working with this erythroid cell system, we really had the advantage that we could, you know, with very high purity, sort out these, these primary stem and progenitor populations, and then also look at very high resolution what the structure was and how that changes. So, so we were then able to look with sort of very high spatial, or sorry, with very high temporal resolution, you know, starting with, with, with sort of hematopoietic stem cells and then going all the way through different stages of erythroid differentiation. Uh, and then we, you know, we were able to characterize all those stages with a lot of detail. So we looked at um, at the establishment of open chromatin. So we used a taxic, um, and we uh, we characterized the three dimensional architecture of like specific genes that we know get activated in erythroid cells. Um, and we of course correlated it with gene expression, doing RNA seq and also RNA fish. And and basically what we what we found is that um, the larger genome structures are set up very early in differentiation. So, so the TAD kind of structures, you know, they're already present, um, you know, at the hematopoietic stem cell uh, stage, when the genes that we were interested in that were going to be activated way later were still completely silenced. And then what we found was that, um, you know, as the first sort of regulatory step, you know, the, the regulatory elements would uh, become activated. So we started seeing very small attack seek peaks, again, like way before gene expression was, uh, was switched on. And then we could see that those, those sort of little peaks of the, the, those regulatory elements becoming accessible, they would sort of start to form three-dimensional structures that would kind of correspond to relatively weak enhancer promoter interactions, and they would really gradually strengthen as those regulatory elements would become more accessible and as gene expression was activated. So we basically found this very beautiful correlation between, um, you know, between the regulatory elements becoming more active, the formation of enhancer promoter interactions and the uh, and the activation of, of, of genes. Um, and that was really interesting to us because there had also been a couple of reports out in the field saying that everything is pre-established in the sense that enhancer promoter interactions are already set up before genes are activated. And, and we kind of found the same thing in the sense that, you know, we saw some very weak enhancer promoter interactions present before we had full gene activation, but uh, we really saw that, you know, when we had sort of looked, when we were looking with higher resolution that, that there was sort of a degree to, to it, you know what I mean? So we had weak enhancer promoter interactions pre-established, but they were strengthening as gene activation was really being switched on. So, so you know, a really clear correlation between all these events. So can you have, is this, is this like an order? So at first promoters and enhancers get like open um, at, at, at first uh, because you see it in attack seek, then they form like a, a loop 
<laughs> maybe or some kind of connection then uh, it gets activated and then uh, like this reinforcement loop starts all over again so the the connection is established and is reinforced and then the transcription gets even higher yeah exactly and of, of course it's uh, it's always important to keep in mind that we were still doing all these experiments in in bulk so it's, it's not necessarily that you had a fixed loop that was reinforced but maybe it's also just that a larger proportion of the cells were you know we're, we're, we're getting that 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 that, uh, that kind of confirmation o over time you know these kind of like you know how it works at a single cell level that's still a big, yeah, okay. big open question um but but no essentially it's exactly as you okay. as you say it seems that you are a big fan of developing new methods to characterize uh, the 3d structure of chromatin uh, why is that are you unsatisfied with the available methods or what is it that drives you to develop new methods um i mean it's it's usually kind of been been driven by by questions, you know. So in the case of Tri C, you know, we did kind of have this question, you know, how do multiple elements interact together? And then, um, you know, we just were aware that we couldn't answer that question with the current methods that we had. And I think, you know, also kind of growing up in this lab that's very strong in method development. Of course, we know the methods really well and, and and that you know what i mean it's not just that you're kind of following somebody else's protocol like you made mm. the protocol so then you're also much more inclined to start thinking but actually you know maybe if i change this this and this and this step and then you do that and of course it doesn't work but but then you know you you, you realize that then you know you know you need to change also a few other things and and you can get there so i think if you just kind of start to come from the tradition of of you know really establishing your own your own protocols your own methods it becomes much easier to to also adapt the methods to kind of be able to answer your question and i think for the differentiation project it was kind of the same thing that we we wanted to characterize those different stages for a long time and we realized we just had too few cells to be able to do it well with the existing methods and so we we felt like okay we need to push this further and how could we do that um so it's very much been been driven by by, by the question, but of course, also, you know, coming from the ability to to, to just be thinking in that, that kind of way. Um, okay. Um, are you working on a new method right now or was it, it, what is it what you're working on right now and what is, or what are your plans maybe, let's say for the next five years? Yeah, so we've actually, um, without necessarily having planned on doing that, we, we did just put out, um, um, a manuscript on the bioarchive in which we present yet another <laughs> based method. So it's, it's you know it's becoming a little bit, a bit tiresome to come up with new names and so forth. And I think it's really also not about that you know that you want to kind of like rebrand something. It's just about you know being able to see something that you weren't able to see before when you when you tweak the protocol. And so what what's become really um, more prominent in the last couple of years is to change the digestion step in the 3C method. So we uh, traditionally, we used to cut with restriction enzymes that recognize a specific sequence. And um, already, I think in, I forget exactly what it was, but I think in 2015, people started using um, MNAs instead, which of course uh, doesn't have the specific recognition sequence. So in theory, you are able to get um, much higher resolution data. And that was initially done in, in yeast and that has recently also been optimized in, um, in, in, in mammals. And so we've then sort of um, 
you know, you know, initially, so this is this is micro C, so that's kind of like the high C version of it. And we've now also built um, a more focused version of it where you don't have to sequence the entire genome, but this you know, is sort of the thing that we do where you can then zoom into a region that you're interested in. And the same kind of principle applies that you, um, because you're focusing on a smaller region, you're able to sequence it much deeper. And so you get a much more detailed view of, of, of a few regions that, that you're interested in. And so um, we, we did this in collaboration with, uh, which, with, with James Davies at the University of Oxford, who I still knew from my time there. Uh, and it's, it's quite challenging to work with, with MAs because it, it cuts in a very different way. And it's, it's kind of destroys the DNA a little bit. <laughs> so we need to, there's no way we can do this in, in small cell numbers yet because uh, you know, it, it takes a lot more sort of polishing and so forth to end up with the nicely ligated ends. But, um, but, 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 you know, when you use, when you use cells where, where you can use, you know, millions of cells, then uh, you get, you get in, in insanely high resolution structure. So that's, that's really, really interesting. And then we combine that also with um, doing some, some protein depletions. Uh, so, so one thing that I got really interested in is this question, um, um, you know, we have these, the, these tabs in the genome, right, which are these kind of like larger structures that are formed by, by loop extrusion. So it's mediated by cohesin and CTCF. And, um, and there was kind of like this curious observation that these tabs are in principle really um, important for gene regulation. So if you, if you perturb their boundaries, you can, you know, you can get enhances in one tab, activating genes in a neighboring tab, and that causes sort of, um, ectopic expression and sort of, you know, it, it, it rewires gene regulation in a way that it shouldn't be. So from that perspective, it seemed like these stats were really important for gene regulation, but at the same time, there was this curious observation that if you depleted either CTCF or cohesin, all tabs would be gone and there wouldn't be such strong effects on on gene expression. And so we were we were pretty surprised by that. And, and we started thinking, you know, to what extent are enhanced promoter interactions really dependent on this process of, of loop extrusion? Because if you don't get such detrimental defects, you know, maybe, you know, the TADs are just a sort of a separate thing from the enhanced promoter interactions that are driven by different um, mechanisms. And so we wanted to get a really high resolution view of some well-characterized enhanced promoter loops in the absence of cohesion. And so this this new um, sort of like tiled micro C method that we developed, uh, we actually called it tiled micro capture C, so tiled MCC for short, um, <laughs> was, well, you know, did really give us that ability to characterize that in, in great detail. And, and we find indeed that actually enhanced promoter interactions are maintained, even if you don't have cohesion and CTCF, but they're, they're a little bit weaker. Um, so in the, in the case of the cohesion depletion, they're a little bit weaker. And in the case of the CTCF depletion, um, they, they're not necessarily weaker, but in some cases, you know, they can kind of jump where there would have been a boundary. So you get some rewiring. And so what we kind of conclude from that is that, you know, loop extrusion to some extent contributes to sort of the robust formation of enhanced promoter interactions and then their specificity, but it's not essential for it. And so I think that that solves that puzzle a little bit of, you know, abolishing TADs, but not necessarily um, having detrimental impact on, on the expression of all genes. Yeah, this uh, bioarchive paper was published in early August, um, and I will, yeah. link, I will link to that uh, in the show notes so that everybody can um, look at that and, and um, if, if uh, you're interested. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? 
Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, as I, as I said before, you know, we've had some questions that we, that we couldn't answer and that's kind of like inspired us to, to, you know, redevelop our protocols a little bit and so forth. So it's, it's almost kind of been like an inspiration to, to, you know, innovate. Um, and I think, and, and I think, you know, from that, yeah. So, so, so generally it's, it's, it, it, I've kind of, you know, been, been using that as, as a motivation to 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 develop new things and so forth and i think it's always kind of been working out well well so far and i should say i've also really been in in very supportive uh environments with with you know great um great great mentors and, and great colleagues and so so it's it's always kind of been going quite smoothly also the transition between between career stages so i think it's been yeah, I've been very fortunate in that. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, <laughs> in the last 38 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Yeah, I think I think you did a pretty good job in, in covering it. So I think I think what's really motivated um, us is to um, yeah to to really be able to characterize. Um, the, the three-dimensional structures in the genome um, and relate that to, to, to gene regulation. So I think what we've really been doing is, you know, developing methods that allow us to, to characterize those structures, you know, in greater detail than, than we could do before. And then also kind of linking that to how different gene regulatory processes work. Uh, and, and that's something that we're, we're, we're continuing now in, um, in our lab here in, uh, in Göttingen. So we're really trying to get to, you know, what are the mechanisms that, that really underlie these, these, these structures and, and, and how do they relate to, to the regulation of, of gene expression. Thank you, Mariki, for your time and for being on this show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.